Isaiah chapter 8 starts by saying, Moreover, the Lord said. So that is the continuation of the prophecy from Isaiah 7, where God assured Ahaz, king of Judah, that he would not be overthrown by the combined forces of Syria and Israel. So he's receiving that assurance from the Lord in chapter 7, and then 8 begins with that statement. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalom Hashbaz. That's always a good boy's name if you're looking for a new one for the son or grandson that may come along. This uh, statement, uh, write on it with a man's pen, is the idea that uh, write it in such a way that any man could understand it. You know, don't, don't write it with such high and lofty spiritual thoughts and content that only those who are extremely churched would be able to understand it. Write it in simple form. Um, there's a challenging thought within that. You know, the <clears throat> introduction of the King James Version was an effort to put the Bible into the modern vernacular so that the common man could read it. You didn't have to be a priest. You didn't have to know Latin and Greek or some ancient form of the German or any other language. You could sit down and read it in the common tongue was the thought. So, you know, from that effort uh, was produced one of the most noble works of translation ever created, the King James Version. But the intention was to put it in the modern vernacular, to, to make it so that the common man could read it. Now, unfortunately, <clears throat> it has become so venerated because it is an amazing piece of work that now people nearly worship it or in some cases all worship it or almost worship it as though it were God's word itself. Literally, there are some who say that the King James Version, thank you, is capable of correcting the Hebrew and the Greek language. Okay, that's completely false. Okay? If you want to know and understand God's original word, you've got to learn Greek and Hebrew or how to use your Greek lexicon or your concordance very efficiently. The, the original language is the only way to know it. Now, <clears throat> the modern translations. Uh, you start moving into the likes of the NIV. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love the NIV. I use it frequently. It, it phrases things out in such a way that it's much more easily understood. This evening, I'm going to reference, hopefully, if we get far enough, Philippians 2.7, which is tortured in the NIV. It's destroyed in its translation. Other passages you read, does a beautiful job. Then you come to that, and it's mangled. So we need to be serious students of the Scripture. Here, 
you hear God's intention. He wants people to be able to read his word with very basic understanding. But you can read certain translations and end up with extremely improper understand, you know, misunderstandings of the scripture. Uh, when my wife and I first started growing in the Lord, I had an entire history of having been raised in the church. I had rebelled against it, but I had a lot of doctrine that was infused into my foundation and understanding as we began in our teen years to follow the Lord with our lives. She had none. So, you know, as we began to talk about things over time, months, you know, years passing, uh, she would say, you know, something about what she believed. And I'd say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't line up with the word of God. What do you mean by that? And we would discuss. And in the end, very often what we came down to was the translation she enjoyed and was using that she could read so easily from was giving her a doctrine that was improper, was showing her things in particular about the deity of Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus is God, that were improper. So uh, all of this to say, God wants us to know and understand his word very simply. But at the same time, you don't want to build your faith or your doctrine from the likes of the message, okay, or the children's living Bible. Those read very well, or even the new living translation, which I recommend. They're good, but in the end, it isn't even the King James that's going to render that to you. It's about being a serious student of God's word about digging in and finding these things. I always recommend eSword. It's a free Bible software. If you're using your computer, it'll help you study in a lot of ways. Blue Letter Bible has a lot of commentary and a lot of good study resources so that you can learn some things. If the Holy Spirit puts a question in your heart, it's your responsibility to find the answer, right? You're just reading through your NIV, thinking that's wonderful, this is great, and then something pops up, like, mm, what's that about? It's your responsibility to go find what that's about, to study God's word. So here you hear it, uh, the fact that he wants it written with the common pen, the common tongue, the easily understood. Neher Howell Shaspaz uh, means speed to the spoil or hurry to the plunder. So here, this child's name is reflective of the circumstances that are unfolding in front of them. He's giving this assurance to King Ahaz that Syria is uh, not going to affect them in the way that they had previously thought. So verse 2, I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah, the priest, and Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah. Now, this principle is from Deuteronomy. Actually, Jesus talks about it later in the New Testament. Let everything be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. You don't want to believe automatically what people say or testify Two, things need to be established according to truth. I just had a conversation this week where, you know, in this culture that 
is what sociologists or psychologists might refer to as <clears throat> postmodernism. You know, relevance, relativity, what people you know think of as being true. What I believe to be true is true for me. What you think to be true is true for you. That's false. Okay, that's a false teaching. Yeah, I was describing a particular situation, and a person said of that situation, well, my opinion of that situation is thus and such. I said, wait a second. What I'm declaring to you about that situation is not my opinion. I'm declaring to you the truth of those circumstances. And then you're expressing your opinion about them, how it affected you. I can respect the fact that that's your experience with what I just declared, but don't try to make what I'm saying about the circumstance just another opinion. I'm declaring to you the truth from God's word about a spiritual circumstance. That's the truth of that circumstance. Yes, you then had your experience, and that's affected you in a particular way, and that's your experience with it. But that doesn't make your experience as legitimate as the truth, right? Let every man be a liar, and God alone be true. His word, his word, his truth is not equal to the opinions of man. And really, we should say it the other way, right? Man's opinions are not equal to God's truth. So here, as he's making these statements through the prophet Isaiah, he declares that it's not just going to be one man's opinion. There are going to be others who are witness to it, who make record of it, and then it's going to come to pass. Verse 3, Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Now, uh, the fact that she's referred to as a prophetess here might simply mean that she is the wife of the prophet Isaiah. But you do need to keep in mind that there are many prophetesses throughout the scripture. Those women who spoke on behalf of the Lord and prophesied to the nation of Israel and God honored and fulfilled the things that they declared. So throughout the scripture, women are as significant as men and their spiritual guidance of the body of believers. Now, God himself, being masculine, chose to make men in his own image and place them as the head of their households and the head of the church. But even within the scripture, he makes women to be the head of nations, including Israel, as Deborah led the nation of Israel. It, it isn't that God has a lesser view of women in any way. Men have certainly taken God's position of men and warped it to try and make something that God never intended out of it, right? Because even in the idea of men being the leaders in homes and in the church, the idea is that you would have incredibly gentle, meek men 
in their strength, guiding those who follow them through their relationship with God. Not through some tyrannical overlord thought or process, right? We, we hear even in the New Testament, Jesus warning against that, teaching against that. Peter makes those reflective statements about not lording over those that we are to lead, but through example, right? Through my example of following Christ and being in a relationship with the Lord, I extend to others the ability to follow the Lord. You know, in the end, hopefully, it's not that men and women are following me as a pastor, that by example, they can see, oh, that's how you follow the Lord, right? It was Spurgeon who was walking with a fellow minister, and they had worked together in Spurgeon's ministry for some time, and as they were walking through the street, there was a man who was drunk, just break it, just shatter it on the floor. Just... No, take your time, or really. <laughs> I'm so glad that wasn't my phone. Um. Because it easily could have been. I don't know where it is, and I don't know whether it's on. So, um, This man, fellow minister with Spurgeon, walking uh, with him, saw a drunkard who had literally in his stupor fallen into the gutter there in England. And the fellow minister with Spurgeon said, Isn't that one of your converts? And Spurgeon, without any hesitation, said, Surely it must be. And then after some time in discussion, the fellow minister realized what Spurgeon was saying was, this can't be a convert of Christ. Right? This, this man must be following my example. If he's, if he's a drunkard falling down in the gutter, that's not Christ working in this man's life. It's got to be my example. You know, whether I'm a drunkard or not, I, you know, I've, I've somehow led this person to live their life in the flesh rather than in the spirit. You know, so we, you know, through our example, you know, the, the prophetess, she has this great responsibility, at least in her family here, the wife of Isaiah has prophesied to the world by naming her son according to what the Lord had wished, you know, speed to the spoil, hurry to the plunder. That's not exactly what you think of when you want to name your child, right? What would we like to name our child, honey? I don't know. You know, Bill, Harry, whatever. Uh, how about hurry to the spoil? You know, that sounds good. Let's do that. Obedience to the Lord, not her husband, to the Lord, that this man would be a testimony to the world. She conceived, bore a son. The Lord said to him, call his name, may her shallow hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry my father or my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So Ahaz is concerned that, you know, you're going to have this invasion that is going to occur and they're going to be wrecked and ruined. And the prophet is saying this child that has just now been conceived will be bo born. And before he can even say mom and dad, 
before we can even utter those syllables, right? Because we, we like to attribute to them as quickly as we can that they're calling out our name, right? You know, If they say Papa or Papa or anything that sounds like Dad or Papa or what, they, see, they're saying my name. You know, As soon as they begin to just utter syllables, we claim it. And that's very young. And, and here the prophet is saying before this child is even hardly developing, these things are already going to have taken place. You know, it isn't going to be 40, 50, 70 years down the road. These things are going to transpire very rapidly. So we talked about that in our study last week about how you know nations here in this passage that at the time were thought of as so threatening within a very short period of time would be meaningless. And simultaneously, nations that were thought of as meaningless would become incredible superpowers. I made the reflection upon our modern day and how rapidly things change in our culture. I was just, I freaked everybody out yesterday in a study. You know, commonly people will point out, look, you know, America isn't even in biblical prophecy. You know, the critics try to say that the Bible didn't know of the existence of the Americas and therefore it didn't, you know, speak of these things, all whatever. Um, you know, Christians, good meaning thinking Christians are saying things like, you know, well, maybe it'll be the rapture. You know, that, that the, the change that will occur in the world will be so dramatic because, you know, America will lose so many people through the rapture that when God comes in, that's a noble thought right there, that there are that many Christians in America. I hope so. hope that's the case. Currently, only 42% of Americans say that they're born-again evangelical. That's kind of frightening when just a couple decades ago it was 80%. So the drop is dramatic. We're down to 42 on average. 42% of Americans say that they're born-again evangelical Christians. So let's just say that number's complete and whole. 42% of America taken by the Lord as the church all at once. That would be a dramatic change for America. How about this? Right now, I believe it's under Yellowstone, the world's largest volcano is brewing. I don't know if you're aware of that. And... Uh, the volcanologists, and th those guys are real. That's not from Star Trek, okay? <clears throat> the, those that study volcanoes say it is by far the world's largest volcano. If it were to erupt in completion, right, because you see certain volcanoes that just sort of simmer, you know, blow their top, and you know, I have a small local eye. They're talking, if this thing were to lose its entire crown, you're talking about from the Midwest, to the west coast would be gone gone just like that it is it is a massive super volcano that covers states not like one little location that would blow up and like ruin a town this is a matter of changing the face of the globe 19 i believe it was 92 mount pinatubo erupted in the philippines blew a periclastic cloud 15 miles into the atmosphere while the earth continued to turn, that thing just puking out its filth for days into the upper stratosphere, it cooled the earth's temperature two degrees by just shading with ash the sun. Imagine the cataclysmic changes that would take place if something so large blew up that it wiped out half of America. That would be good reason to not have America in prophecy anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
Oh, I remember America. They were, yeah, right. You know, red, white, and blue. Yeah, sure. Coca-Cola, right. I remember I remember that stuff. You never know how it's going to unfold. We look at things from our prideful perspective. God's in control. We don't want to view it through fear or pride based upon the human perspective. We want to look at it from God's word and see what he has to say. Live ready constantly. 8 verse 5. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramallah's son. Now, this is a literal um, river, a spring-fed water source that he's referring to, Shiloh, and how there at Zion it finds its spring-fed origins, and it flows, they say, uh, poets say, the scriptures say, it's repeatedly referred to as flowing softly, as oil without a sound. There's, there's no location in it historically where it drops dramatically and it even makes a bubbling sound. It's as though this water source just moves along silently. And what the Lord is saying is here, especially in the north, where this water of Shiloh begins, they don't have a respect for the soft, quiet flow of the Lord, the life and the fruitfulness that he brings. They're instead infatuated with the ramble and the noise that's associated with Rezin and Ramallah's son, foreign leaders. God is making the comparison between the fact that they don't respect the life that God has given them through this very quiet water source versus the life they think they're going to get by making these agreements with foreign kings. They're looking at those as a... He's saying you should be looking to your own resources. I'm, I'm the life that created you, brought you into existence, gave you your sustenance and all that you need. And rather than being content with those things, you, you have a disgrace in your mind towards them. Because they're not boisterous, because they're not proud, because they're not things that you can let the rest of the world look at and be astonished with. They're humble. They're quiet things. And then you don't like that. You don't like the fact that people aren't moved by what they see. There's a danger spiritually in this. That when believers within the church can't be still and know that he is God. Can't simply sit and in the quiet of prayer discover the power of the Holy Spirit. When they have to have the noisy, the loud, the boisterous in order to become convinced, oh, the power of the Holy Spirit is here. You can end up just pursuing noise, commotion, 
and missing entirely the power of the Holy Spirit. Sitting in quiet reflection with the Word of God in your hands, right? Have you ever sat down with the Word of God thinking, oh, I'm going to have to dig deep. It's been so long. I'm so dry. I need the intensity of the Lord. Let me just find it here. And you're one verse in. You're a few words in. And the Lord has hit you so powerfully that you can spend the rest of your time reflecting about what the Lord just said to you, the rest of the day, the rest of the week, impacted by a few words. Oh, how we miss the power of God. We're so enamored with the things of the world. The quiet, peaceable power. So many of this congregation have come to me and said, you know, please thank your wife for teaching me to, you know, read the word of God daily in the one-year Bible. The change that has made in their life to just get up every day, go to the date, and read those passages of Scripture. You know, at first it was a little bit cumbersome, and then over time the habit developed, and then the Word of God begins to take root, and now suddenly they're realizing the power of continuously being in God's Word. And corporately, talk to a brother or a sister, and they read the same thing that morning. They were in the Word also. And the Lord, oh, that is a wonderful passage. Let me share with you what the Lord said to me. And oh, I had no idea that was even there. The way that that stillness, the quiet, it, it's such a human thing to need to have a show. Got to have something there. Can't just be something. See, this was Jesus, right? He shows up and the scripture records that the crowds did not care for him. Because upon appearance, there was nothing comely about him that they would desire him. He was not taller than everyone else. He was not more beautiful than everyone else. He was not more eloquent than everyone else. There was nothing about him. Literally, you know, people came and they, they were saying things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This, this is the guy? This is what you want me to look at? And little by little, they're experiencing the power of Jesus Christ working. The human condition to look after the spectacular. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. Oh, you admired these rivers, these raging rivers of Rezin and Ramallah? Well, they're going to come to you. Behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks, and he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and stretch out of his wings, will fill the breadth of the land, O Emmanuel. Now, a few things there. Uh, the idea is he has defined borders of Assyria that he's already spilled over and conquered surrounding nations around him, but he's going to spill over into Israel, and he's going to take Israel completely. This is the end. 
What the prophet is describing right here is the end of Israel. Okay, it's divided, right, as a nation. Two tribes in the south, Judah, have become one nation, and the you know ten tribes in the north have become the nation of Israel. This is what's being described here is the end of Israel, where Assyria overflows the border, takes Israel in the north, and even flows into the south of Judah up to the neck but not to completely destroy them. He's going to withdraw, and they're going to be left to their own. But Israel to the north will be gone. They, they, they will be completely vacated from their existence. They'll be taken away as captives. He is literally going to treat the two nations as separate. Judah in the south will be touched and influenced, affected, but not overrun, taken, and drawn away into captivity like the ten northern tribes. So, you know, this is a powerful statement on the part of the Lord of, you know, Israel doesn't respect the soft flowing waters of Shiloh. They they look to this raging river as their savior. And when he breaks loose, he's not going to be their savior. He's going to be their conqueror. Think about, you know, some personal application, you guys, the things that we looked to for strength that ended up ruining us. You know, so many times we, we would you know, rely upon some earthly thing. And in the end, it cost us bitterly. Cost us horribly as we relied upon some ungodly thing. For you name it, right? Your stability, your comfort, your provision. God will take those things away in order to teach you, I am supposed to fill all of those roles in your life. This is not supposed to be the thing that you rely upon. You're not supposed to have a dependency upon this. I'm supposed to be your one dependable thing. God will allow that to take place. Now this reference here of O Emmanuel and the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14, uh, you know, the land of the Assyrians will invade doesn't really belong to Judah or the king Ahaz. It belongs to the Lord, to the coming Messiah, to Emmanuel, is what's being said. You know, the land that's going to be overrun, it belongs to God. So he'll allow it to be overrun if he wants to. This is not Ahaz's property. It's not Israel's property. It's not Judah's property. It's God's land. And he gets to say what's going to occur in it. 8 verse 9, Be shattered, O you peoples. Be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from the far countries. Gird yourselves. Prepare yourselves. Ready yourselves. But be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. You know, the idea is that the repetition is supposed to catch their attention. This is the same thing, uh, you know, twice in a row. We hear Jesus in the New Testament saying, verily, verily, right? We, we hear Jesus, you know, saying, you know, uh, you know, most assuredly, most assuredly, I say unto you. He wants us to pay attention to this. Prepare yourself all you want. You're going to be broken in pieces. Your preparing yourself isn't going to prevent What's going to happen? Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Notice that? This is not God is with you. 
God is with us. Who is the us? Well, at the moment, it's the prophet. The prophet and his children and his wife and the words of their mouths. The things that he is saying. I appreciate that. That position that he's taking, right? Because the world doesn't respect our voice. You can say the truth of God's word to the world and it ignores you. And in the end, it really is an us-against-them thing. And it's just such a wonderful thing to know we win in the end, right? We, we are the underdog. The world can stack everything it's got against us. Our entire existence here on planet Earth can be one of defeat. And in the end, we come from behind and we win. Our God is the victor. You know, he is the one who we are with. For God is with us. That is the whole point of following this. Judah would survive the Assyrian invasion, but suffer a lot of destruction in the process. 8 verse 11. For the Lord God, or excuse me, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, I guess I'm going to go for the personal modern application first, and then we'll look at what was going on at the time. I am amazed at the number of of people inside Christianity that I talk to that are caught up in conspiracies. It just it, it, the whole conspiracy theory thing. Um, let me just say this: uh, Who knows what our government is doing, right? I mean, good grief! You just—it's astonishing to find out later how things really unfolded. But but here here's what our enemy wants to do with this, right? He wants to cause division. That's what he wants to do. So is there a conspiracy on whatever level? You know, I mean, you can pick any direction you want to go with this. You know, money, conspiracies, uh, you know, deep state conspiracies, uh, health conspiracies, food conspiracies, uh, you know, moon landing conspiracies. What, what do you want to do? Okay, I don't care what you want to do. There is a conspiracy, a conspiracy, and there is a conspirator, and Lucifer is at the core of it all. And he wants us to be divided. As a nation, he wants us to be divided, divided against one another, right? Divide us every way he can. Divide the economic strata. Divide the race, you know, amongst the different colors of skin. Divide based upon, you know, I just had a conversation over, you know, uh, food. And, you know, disease people, everybody's allergic to wheat now. Everybody's allergic to, you know, milk now. Everybody's, and, you know, the government's doing this and the government's doing that. Listen, here's something to consider. I'm not against these things. Just, just hear me for a split second on this. Try not to be offended at what I'm saying. Hear me in this. 
when God created Adam and Eve, they were created in the image of God. And that was the last time we were going to be that close to perfect. Any of you guys, uh, how many in the room grew up with cassette tapes? Okay. You ever make, you you ever make a, a, a mixtape? Did you ever do that? Okay. There's a real reason behind this. Follow me in this, right? You ever make a mixtape for yourself and your friend was like, dude, this is awesome. Can I copy this? And you were like, sure. And he made a copy. Well, see, your mixtape is already a copy, right? Because you took all the original songs and you copied them down onto your mixtape. And now your friend is making a copy of your copies. It doesn't sound anywhere near as good, does it? And then, so like some of, some of the young people in the room are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> I was with a group of kids last week, uh, two weeks ago now, did not know what a CD was. Do you feel old now? They didn't know what a CD was. When I explained that it was like a DVD, but it only had music, no pictures on it, they were like, okay. Not even like, oh, I remember that. They were like, okay. They've never experienced music any other way than digital. You make a copy of the copy, which was copied from a copy, and like, just throw that away. Never mind, right? It's junk. You've done it with photocopies. You photocopied the photocopy that was photocopied from a photocopy that was photocopied. Like, might as well just burn it, right? It gets to a point where everything is so... We are copies of copies that were copied from a copy that was copied from a copy that was copied. The DNA deterioration, you guys. We don't have to look for a conspiracy anywhere. Of course, Jesus said pestilence would be a sign of the end. Disease. We don't have to figure out. We don't have to figure out if Lyme disease was created in Connecticut. We don't care. If it was or it wasn't, listen, hear me in this. I'm not upset about it. I'm not taking either side. If it was or it wasn't, what Lucifer wants to do with that is divide us. Take the conspiracy and pit people against one. I have watched Christians come to tooth and nail over Lyme disease. I'm not exaggerating. Fellowship being broken. And in the end, neither side knows what they're talking about. They don't know. Right, as much as I might have this opinion over here that I'm holding to, I don't really know what happened. I wasn't there mixing chemicals to create nothing. I was mixing chemicals for my own purposes at the time. You know what I'm saying? Messing up my own mind. And Jesus came and found me and delivered me from it and brought me here to teach the word of God. To bind us together. To bring us together, to unite us under what? Jesus Christ. His salvation. Conspiracy. Whisper, whisper, whisper. Oh, they don't believe that? I'm wholeheartedly sold out on that conspiracy. And he says it's false, and now I'm offended. I'm offended with my brother over the fact that he doesn't believe the conspiracy that I hold to. 
How ridiculous. Our, and look, if we, if he can't get us to fight about doctrine, right? We're like stinking cats. You just dangle the thing in front of us and now we're like all messing with it. We, got, we were created so much higher than this. So much higher than this. We need to control our thoughts, control our minds, control our hearts and our emotions. Let the word of God govern us in this. Not this foolishness. I just can't even believe the degree that I'm watching people get caught up in this. It's, it's an unfortunate thing. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Specifically, what he's talking about is back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6, where it says, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Let, let, us, you know, let us go to Judah and conquer it and get rid of their king and set up a king that we would want to have in place. And now all of Judah is like, there's a conspiracy. They're going to come here and conquer us and put up this other king, and then we'll lose our identity. The Lord is saying, forget all of that. Forget all of the conspiracy. Trust me. Trust me. The message hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed. It's so relevant for today. I'll say again, there is a conspiracy. There is a conspirator. It is Lucifer himself. And you are never going to be able to find the end of those things. He's been at this practice for thousands of years. And he is so masterful, so masterful at manipulating people. It's incredible the way that he can twist and turn people's minds. Now, Isaiah's prophecy declared the armies of Syria and Israel would not succeed in conquering Judah, but the Assyrians, who were trusted to help them, would attack them and do a lot of damage. So in 13, it says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Think about that. Rather than the conspiracy, let him be your fear. You should be afraid. You should have fear in your relationship. with People don't like that. They're like, I, I am not afraid of God. He, he is my father. He is my friend. He, he, you know, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Right. Yeah, I know that Jesus. I know all about that Jesus. I also know that after Jesus Christ's resurrection, every one of the gospel writers stopped referring to him as Jesus and referred to him from that point on as the Lord Jesus Christ. They put his mastery and his lordship and his title in his name. After the resurrection, every one of them showed a whole new level of reverence for Christ. We have to have this reverential fear. Listen, you don't have to be scared about your salvation. Don't get me, don't get me wrong there, right? He told us we can know that we are saved. 
We can rest. This is what John said. We can rest in the peace of knowing our salvation. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether you've been a good girl or a good boy. It has to do with how powerful is Jesus Christ. Is he capable of saving you? Yes, he is. And everybody said, amen. He can save you. Jesus Christ's strength is what you're trusting in. At the same time, there needs be a reverential respect, a fear for that strength. Jesus Christ is going to make every knee bow before him. He is going to slay his enemies with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. That's, that's New Testament Jesus. right? People, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. He was judgmental and angry. No, he wasn't. He was kind and gracious, forgiving and benevolent. Wanted Jonah to go preach to the most murderous nation on the planet, Nineveh. Save them all. Why? Why save the the murderous Ninevites? Because there were more than 180,000 children in the city that didn't know their left hand from their right. Kind, benevolent God of the Old Testament. Right, gentle Jesus of the New Testament, absolutely. And then you see him in Revelation in all of his splendor and his glory. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's unchanged. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need fear. Don't be afraid of the the conspiracies. Let people say whatever they're going to say. Trust God. Fear him. Let him be your dread He will be as a sanctuary. When you are afraid, then he will be your hiding place. Isn't that an interesting thought? That in that reverential fear of him, he becomes your protection. That you can hide behind him. That he will watch over you. Be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and be taken. He is both a fortress and a trap. He's a fortress for those who love him and fear him. He is a stumbling and a trap for those who have rejected him. The the New Testament has reflections on that. Psalm chapter 2 verse 12 says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. right? He doesn't have to even completely lose his mind. You just make him a little mad and his wrath will overwhelm you. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Do you see the duplicity there? That, that he will destroy those who have made him angry and also protect those who trust in him. It's a very... Strong statement of Jesus being God here in Isaiah. Because clearly in Isaiah 8, 13, and 14, the Lord of hosts is the stone. And clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Jesus is the stone. If you read, it says, therefore, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, therefore, it is also Contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, 
and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. You know, it's it's one way or the other. He's either your fortress and your protection if you have a reverence for him, or he is your destruction if you are opposed to him. It's a, a same, similar thing, perhaps, that Simeon said in Luke chapter 2, verses 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. He'll cause some people to fall. He'll cause other people to rise. It all depends upon your relationship with him. Now, in verse 16, it says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord. Now, this term wait is used a couple times by Isaiah, and it's a little different then wait occurs anywhere else. Many of the commentators talk about waiting on Jesus, as it's referred to here, like waiting uh, as a waiter, that you would care for his needs and do whatever he asked you to do. That's kind of contained in it, but it's different in the Hebrew language. The wait that's being described here is the idea of piercing through to attach something to something else, uh, the idea of adhering to it, okay? If you want to think about this in, in the idea of being a waiter, okay, waiting tables, it would be the idea that uh, you were more like a servant to a master at a table, that you would stand with your full attention focused on that one master throughout his entire meal and anything that it even looked like he wanted, you know, if, if he were to, you know, take a drink of his glass and as he set it down, you recognize there's nothing left in the glass, you would immediately go over and refill. It's not the idea of being a waiter. You know, some of us have done that where you got like, you know, three or five tables you're taking care of and you just go around a couple times and ask, hey, you got everything you want? You know, it, it isn't that idea. It's the idea of being affixed to, pierced to, you know, something that nails you to the one that you're attending to. This is what Isaiah means later when he says that those who wait upon the Lord will rise up with wings of eagles, right? Walk and not faint. You know, the, the idea isn't that you're going to sit and wait for Jesus to arrive. Or the idea that you're even going to be a waiter at his table, just hoping to do every one of the needs that he has. It's the idea of being attached to him. Jesus in, in John chapter 15 saying those who abide in me, you know, the, the vine, the branches, that's more along the idea of being attached to the one. So I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for 
signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Now, uh, I and my children are for a sign. He's saying, may her shallow haspaz speed the spoil, hurry to the plunder. Speaking of the coming attack on Syria, Israel, Judah, and Assyria, the name Shirjashub means a remnant shall return. So his subsequent child this speaks of the restoration God would eventually bring. The name Isaiah means salvation is of the Lord. He's, he's literally standing before the nation saying, our existence is representative of God's work before you. I, I hope that we can each say that about our lives and our families. That our existence is to serve as an example. That the world could look on and see that we are in service to the Lord. 8 verse 19, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards. When all of this treachery comes upon them, then there's going to be a move towards supernatural things that are not of the Lord. The people are going to be desperate and they're going to look for other influences. They're going to be going to the fortune teller. They're going to be looking for a wizard. They're going to be trying to contact a medium in order to get some answers. They're going to recognize the earth doesn't have the answers I need. I need something more powerful. I need something deeper in its spiritual context. So they're going to begin to look to the wizards and those who, as it says, whisper and mutter. This was a thing that was much more common this day, but it even goes on today. I don't mean to be foolish, but you, you go to certain of these mediums and fortune tellers and they get all mystical and roll their eyes back in their head and begin to, and you know, they're muttering and whispering and you're supposed to be, you know, all spooked out by that and then, you know, get your answer eventually. I had to counsel a young woman years ago who came to this church, went to the fortune teller down in Bar Harbor. She was deeply in distress about her own future. She, she wanted a husband. Wanted, she was lonely, and her desperation led her to the place to go seek out the psychic. Listen, any of us that are 30, 40, 50 years old or older who've had enough life experiences, a young woman comes through the door, and in a few questions you're able to analyze that she's single, you will be immediately able to relay things to her about her emotional state and her existence that will seem supernatural. You'll have insights to her frame of mind. You'll have insights, right? And that's what they did. They manipulated her emotions, her longing for, you know, $250. And if she wanted more answers, it was going to be a thousand, which she brought them. And see, they're getting to know her through the conversations. 
until the total bill has now been $32,000. And what have they told her? You're a very lonely person who's eventually going to find someone. We could have told her that, right? When you're desperate, you will subject yourself to desperate things. God has the answers we need. He does. He has the answers we need. Does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, right? But let him who asks believes and not doubt. That man or woman should not believe that they'll receive anything. Why? Because they're an unstable person. They believe and then doubt, believe and doubt, Un unstable in all their ways, blown and tossed like the waves of the sea. James chapter 1. You need wisdom? Ask of God. He'll give it to you. Don't turn to the mediums, the wizards, the whisperers, and the murderers. Should not a people seek their God? Right? It's a basic question. And we all kind of go, well, of course. You'd be astonished, or maybe you wouldn't, at how many people who profess to be Christians are also reading tarot cards, also seeking a medium, also using the Ouija board, also talking to you know their fortune teller. The horoscope doesn't have your answers, brothers and sisters. Christ does. Jesus does. Seek your God. Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Listen. This passage also exposes the foolishness of praying to the saints. Some people look at that like that's somehow more noble. Just because they're a dead Christian doesn't make them any more accessible than another person who's dead. We have one mediator, Jesus Christ. That's who we need to seek. These are simple, basic, old-school answers, and they will forever be the answer, right? You don't need the new math. Right? One plus one, all the teachers in the room saying amen. One plus one still equals two. Right? Multiplication still works the same way. Prayer to the God of the Bible is still answered. By the God of the Bible. Nothing's changed. The thing that's changed is people's trust, people's faith, where they're looking which is an exposure of the fact that we are that desperate. The church has become this desperate that we're looking other places. Let us look only to the God of the Scripture. 8 verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. You guys, that's the word of God. That's exactly what he's saying. You want your answers? You want to seek God? Look to the word. 
If they do not speak according to the word, it is because there is no light in them. Oh, I'm a Christian, but here, let me tell you about this mystical thing that's going to help you. If they aren't speaking according to the word of God, shut your ears to them. That's not my opinion. That's what God is saying right here. So much of the church has gone down the road. This is why I continuously speak against Elevation Worship and Bethel. Bethel Music. Those guys are going way down the road, communicating with the dead and speaking to all kinds of other mediums and sources. They're doing things that are non-Christian. Non-Christian. You go, I love their music. I've heard it too. Now sit down without that deeply hypnotic music and just read the lyrics. And what you're going to quickly discover is a lot of it is doctrinally unsound. It's encouraging things within the behavior of believers that don't come from the Word of God. You know, I, I read to you last Sunday of the song where they're encouraging the Holy Spirit to come and flood this place so that now that we've had all this deep emotional experience, God can do a miracle. And I made the point that God can do a miracle whether we've felt him or not. God is not an emotion. Okay, understand this. Now, he's deeply emotional. But he's not an emotion. The Holy Spirit is a person. A person. You can't have more. right? The, the Spirit isn't measured out by volume. I got two and a half cups of the Holy Spirit. I just need four. If I could just get you know, another cup and a half, I'd be in good shape. The Holy Spirit isn't measured that way. Leonard Ravenhill in writing the book, Why Revival Tarries, said the question, because the Holy Spirit is a person, the question isn't how much of the Holy Spirit do you have? The question is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? How much are you surrendering yourself to the Holy Spirit? Without, without a moment's hesitation, if you just think about that, you know that's true. Because I'm not, I'm not giving up this area. I'm not giving up that area. It's about how much am I yielding to him? Here, we're hearing it. If, if they speak according to things that are not of the word, <laughs> there's no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. It shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom, of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Those that will not look to the illumination of God and his word will be driven into darkness. If you're going to pursue other things, hey, listen, let me just say this right here, okay, to all of us. I just want to remind us. I didn't get a phone call that you were coming tonight and orchestrate that we would be here in this message. Where we left off two weeks ago, I'm picking up tonight. The Lord orchestrated us hearing this message. Not, not some human form of manipulation. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us. 
about the importance of God's word and following God's word, not earthly human experiences. If, if, we, if we begin down that road, if, if you even begin, or if you, if you have begun with the mind frame that, yeah, 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 the Word of God used to be important. It used to be significant, but it just doesn't do it for me anymore. I'm now looking for other stuff. Darkness is all that's ahead of you. That's it. The illumination is only found in God's Word. Return to the Word, and you will return to the light. Let the Lord speak to your heart. Don't close your heart to it. Amen? Amen. Well, that's all we have time for. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. We'll pick up with chapter 9 next week. Father God, we are so grateful for your great love, for the way that you work in our hearts and minds. Help us to be men and women who, who wait upon you who are pierced through the heart to your heart. That the beating of your heart would be our own. That we would be affixed, attached, laminated to you. Grafted in, deriving your life for our own. Help us to follow you and to trust you in everything that we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.